And it's also going to make things a whole lot more fun. We all know the difference a good story makes to a good game. Tokens and monetary incentives should be secondary to the game itself. A good game will be able to stand on its own. A good token, not necessarily. Welcome to the Games Growth Podcast. Today we interviewed two guests, Felix Norden, CEO of Mure, and Francis Brecken, head of Economy of Chapel, as well as one of the co-founders at Mure. Really, really interesting conversation here. We talked about quite a few things, specifically around how to legally, compliantly, and technologically build and scale Web3 economies. I think we could have found another hour, Warren. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, the thing that comes to mind is I'm thinking about what sort of clickbaity title we can post this with. You'll see that when it goes live. So people actually listen to it because I think it's super interesting and compelling. But when people hear like navigating legal and compliance issues on the blockchain, I think people's eyes might roll. But this is a super important episode. And I thought it was a very interesting format too, because we have two sides of the same coin. We have Felix from Mure, who is building a platform to help teams be compliant with launching Web3 games to navigate various legal and compliance issues, which sounds boring, but can really make or break your business. And then we have Shrapnel as one of the games that is very mindful of this, that's trying to go very large scale and using this technology and thinking about these same issues, but from the developer standpoint. So what did you learn today, Xander? What were your key takeaways? I would say if you're really interested in the game design portion of it, a half to two thirds of the way in, we talk really, really explicitly about game design and token design within the context of Shrapnel. I think that component is really, really interesting. It was part of what I thought was most interesting. They talked about basically what rails do you put around an economy? How do you think about separating a creator economy from a player economy? What are the components of this that you can orchestrate in order to make sure that it's healthy, sustainable, compliant over the long term? And these guys, they kind of be some, two of the smartest guests we've had on our podcast. I mean, these guys are so sharp, both hardcore AI engineers. Even if it sounds like the topic isn't super exciting, I swear it is. Check it out. Yeah, big brain individuals this week. So I hope you all enjoyed the episode. Let us know what you think and if you like more of this deep dive content. Awesome. Welcome to the show, everybody. We have what I think is going to be a super interesting episode today. We have two guests joining. And in a pod first, we have two guests in the same room sharing the same mic, which is perfect because for today's episode, we want to dig into what we're calling navigating the economic and legal labyrinth of Web3 and gaming. And so we have my dear friend, Felix, who is joining, representing Mure. I've been trying to pronounce it right all day who are developing a platform to help developers solve these issues. And then we have Francis joining, who is the head of economy at Shrapnel, a team that is doing their best. And I think one of the most forward thinking teams as far as like building a long-term sustainable gaming business in Web3 that requires both that you do the game right, but also that you are navigating these things that collapse so many Web3 businesses that are treated often as afterthoughts in the realm of building an optimal and functional economy and compliant. And same with all of the legal pitfalls that we're kind of discovering as we go along in Web3. That was my very long intro. Yeah, Felix and Francis, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you very much for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So let's just jump right in. We'd like to start with just some backgrounds. Can you just tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and your path to get to finding Mira and you're working in Web3 full-time. Yeah, yeah, sure thing. So I've always loved solving difficult problems. It stems back from the early school days and university time. So for those who don't know, my background is as a software engineer. I have a full-on degree up to a master's level. My master's degree is in machine learning and AI. 
And coming straight out of uni and also mid-uni, I started working as first a full-stack engineer at Twitch. And then when I graduated, I moved on to applied science. So basically a lot of machine learning and AI working at Twitch with mostly NLP problems, so natural language processing. And it was a very fun and interesting realm when it came to solving difficult problems. We've also heard about how the AI and machine learning hype came around a couple of years back. I like to say that I was cool before AI was cool, given that I worked with those problems even before people thought they existed and moved on from then when it actually became hot. So when it comes to me getting into Web3, I started briefly in uni doing some stupid investments into Ethereum during the, what is it now, two bull markets back or what you should call it. Well, that was white when Ethereum was dipping down hard. So I never touched again until 2020, 2021, when things got more interesting. And that was also around the time when I graduated and got more deep into the so-called shitcoining and degening and made a lot of good friends, connections, including people like Warren and I met Yusander through Warren as well. And around the time we first met was actually the time when I also decided to kind of move on from the Web2 side and actually delve deep into Web3. So I progressed into becoming a full-time software engineering lead at a small startup focusing on Web3 consultancy and Web3 product development, and then started doing a lot of stuff on the side as well. One thing that I'm known for is the decentralized investment organization or decentralized VC called Spectre, which came to be basically the zero or alpha version of what has now become Mure, which is basically focusing on making it as easy as possible to bootstrap people in any type of financial services when it comes to using the good side of Web3 and making it as accessible as possible. We basically want to make it possible for anybody to fundraise or do transactions or anything using the blockchain within a couple of minutes. Yeah, and I think that's a great framework for identifying great businesses that need to be built is first solving a problem for yourself and then realizing other people have those same problems and productizing that. That's definitely a spirit we try to embody here at Uptick. Every piece of software we've built has been first and foremost to solve one of our own problems. And then we try to refine, polish, and open that up to other people. So much respect. And then Francis, tell us a little bit about your journey and how your paths uh, eventually crossed with Felix. So I'll give you an initial background on myself. I started off as an aerospace engineer doing a lot of stuff with mixing AI and drones together. So things on autonomous flight and optimizing you know how you can go from a to b as well as like just larger systems implementations on things like propulsions for satellites so then i kind of pivoted into this space because i realized that it does not pay very well in the uk i think the starting salary is like 25 to 35k the starting salary in crypto is much higher if you could at trading that is so just always kind of been on the periphery of the space so since about 2012 looking into the market doing research on things like bitcoin and then kind of taking the leap once I finish my education to actually try and do something in the space full time. So similar time frame to Felix to actually, you know, get your toes wet and put some money in the game. Also not the greatest time. And then I kind of spent a lot of time lurking on crypto Twitter. So from the kind of aerospace side, I had a, a pretty good deep understanding of a lot of the technical side of this place. And then also a lot of the problem space, like solving difficult problems is what I find interesting. And then slowly found my way to Shrapnel by just meeting the right people. It's a very, very lucky story. I actually met Calvin, who's the head of BizDev over there via Discord. And he just decided to hire me without knowing anything about me because he was like, oh, he seems to know something. And then shortly after I actually met Felix, 
when we were trying to plan an AMA for Shrapnel in Neo Tokyo, we ended up getting distracted talking about AI and his dissertation on natural language processing. And then I think three days later, I was reminded by Shrapnel, hey, weren't you meant to organize something with Neo Tokyo? Like, oh, shit, yeah. So that's kind of the initial story of how we met. Cool. Well, I want to start with the Aperture opened all the way. And so just, I want to talk about what's the current state of Web3 and crypto and games particularly? On the Web3 side, we're in an interesting place, right? Like we've just had the ETFs approved. It's very clear that some kind of regulation is coming. I'm not sure how closely you're following the Coinbase lawsuit right now, but the judge, I think yesterday actually said, hey, maybe it's time to reform the how we test and how we decide what is a security and what isn't. So like we're at this kind of very pinnacle moment it's probably the biggest time in history for it where we've had giant financial institutions come in. We've had regulators turn around and say, hey, maybe we're looking at the space wrong. I will not regulate as what the judges that decide, you know, what becomes the regulation coming in and saying that. So it's very clear that there's some kind of uh, uptick in adoption where the institutions are saying that this could be a legitimate thing. Like we all think it is. That's why we're here. So I think we're at a very nice spot from the eyes being on us. I think the one problem we have is, especially very recent history, we've had a lot of people do very wrong things that were very illegal. So we're kind of living with that. But it's very clear that there's money to be made, which is probably the only thing that matters for these banks that are coming in. So I think we're in a very, very healthy spot with a lot of eyes and ears from the regulators listening to us. And then specifically in gaming, I think it's basically the same thing. Like we've had a lot of products, for example, like Shrapnel, that received tens of millions of dollars worth of investment and games of AA and AAA quality take two to sometimes eight years, depending on how you're actually going about development to actually make. And a lot of these games received investment two to four years ago. So I think we're about to be in a spot where this year is going to be very, very interesting with all of the money that was poured into it. You're going to see some really, really fantastic products coming out. And with a little more regulatory clarity, because people have already launched products, comes, I think, much better and clearer visions for these crypto games that are going to come out. Thanks, Francis. And Felix, anything to add there? What's the temperature check from your perspective? I know you and I have been closely following Web3 gaming space for a few years now. What do you think about this current moment? Yeah, just as much as I like being optimistic as Francis came off as sounding there as well, I feel like it's going to also come to a hard stop for a lot of products that are coming out there as well as we'll actually now figure out and find out who is building quality versus who isn't. And we all know that during the last bull into the bear market, there was a lot of criticism towards crypto gaming and so on, just because people in the gaming realm didn't want to touch anything that had to do with crypto because that was scammy, it was scummy, it was dirty, and it made it so even a lot of the bigger profiles didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And I think it's going to be good in the sense that we're going to get some form of cleaning of the space in that sense. So good products like Shrapnel and other primary genre games are going to come out and actually show what the quality should be and making it sound like it's a top tier AAA game or a high quality product with crypto aspects rather than the whole focus that had been before about just making quick and dirty money from playing a somewhat poor game. With a lot of interest growing into layer twos and, and other dedicated chains like Solana and AVAX or Avalanche, I think it, things are going to open up a lot more. And I know Francis will be able to talk more about that as well with what Shrapnel has been working on. But it's going to be interesting to see what is going to come out of gaming tech and so on in the future, I feel like, to make it more sustainable and easy for people to get into that space as well. As for 
Web3 in general, it's nice to see this upswing. I feel like it's going to be, like Fran said, interesting to see what happens with the Coinbase lawsuit. And I'm not sure if I'm happy or sad to hear that the Howard test is going to be changed because I'm worried that it's going to become way, way stricter and way, way harder to define what a security is. Or it's going to be loosened up and make it more easy to distinguish what an actual security token is versus what isn't. But hey, only time will tell. Yeah. Before going a little deeper into the specifics of how both Shrapnola as a gaming team and Yode as a platform are addressing some of these pitfalls we're going to talk about today, let's identify the issues a little bit more. So maybe Francis, you could start here. We're in, I don't know if you'd call it like V2.5 or V3 of Web3 Gaming. Let's identify from your perspective, what has caused the high fail rate of Web3 games preceding this era? Just identify, like, what are the problems that really need solving with this current generation? Yeah, I think the main problem I don't think comes from the actual game development side. I think a lot of it is this legal and blockchain implementation. You think about a lot of the games that have had time to be made so far, it's more either hyper-casual, casual, or, or single-A type of games that have you know less than 5 million budget, let's say. And then on top of that, they have two other swim lanes that they're not used to having having to work alongside them, which would be a legal counsel that fully understands international law that affects crypto and you know regular gaming law in, in each country, and how that can be effectively implemented, which is extremely expensive. And then you also need, at least in the prior cycles, a lot of blockchain expertise to correctly implement all these things onto the chain itself, which basically doubles to triples your cost depending on how it is you're doing it and what you're approaching it as. And I think a lot of folks didn't necessarily realize this. So I feel like the the earlier side of a gaming ecosystem for people that were very serious about this took on a monumental task and just didn't have the money or the funds to do so. And a lot of these projects, startups that not funded by something like Zynga or, or a large conglomerate that can burn all this money to do the research and, and, and get this right first time. So I think it's just the earlier waves struggle from a financial and capitalization point of view and also just not understanding the full problem scope at hand. I think a lot of the software tech suites that were pitching them, hey, you know, come use insert chain's name here and we'll give you a grant and we'll help you with development. A lot of that kind of failed and crumbled when the project got six months down the line and went, oh, shit, this is actually way more work than we thought, and we're not getting the type of assistance that we thought we would get. And the tools that were promised to us that we were told could do A, B, and C, and not capable of doing each of those things to the degree that we want them to. That's where a lot of the failures come from. I don't think there was actually too much issue with implementing the on-chain gaming side of stuff from the game designer's perspective. I think it was all mainly on the other side, at least for a lot of the projects that I was exposed to. Felix, would love your thoughts here as well. Just the main failure points that you've seen in projects in your time, and maybe you can seg this into which of those problems that Mure is trying to solve specifically. Right, right. When it comes to just gaming and integration implementation side, I think one of the biggest problems is the cause is the fact that a lot of engineers like to find a, when they find a new tool, like a golden hammer, everything becomes a nail. And it feels like there's always this adjustment period. People figure out what the right balance is to be, for example, on-chain versus off-chain. So in my opinion, for example, you shouldn't overly tax the blockchain because then we get choking points and it's going to become a bottleneck. Like we've seen when Ethereum, Solana, everything has just been surging in gas prices just because the network is congested. 
And there are a lot of games that have basically been trying to build everything on top of the blockchain itself. And I don't necessarily see a good point in that. I think a lot of different principles that are coming out from different blockchains have had a lot of value. For example, Bitcoin's principle of the compute itself isn't necessarily relevant, only the outcome should be there, can stand true for a lot of different areas, like showing what's going on in a state of a game or something similar like that. And there are some like financial side aspects where you want to have the transparency and the security of the compute power on the blockchain to use, which I find is very, very relevant as well. That's kind of where Muda comes in as well in trying to lower the barrier to entry when it comes to working with financial tooling and how to transact with the blockchain and making sure that you get the relevant information on the blockchain. And then the other things you can just keep in-house and just make sure that you don't divulge any private information and so on. Those are my two cents, I would say. Can you talk specifically about how Mure solves those problems? Like what are the specific use cases that you're building to address and sort of how does sure. that all work? Yeah, yeah. So the core problem that we originally set out to solve was fundraising, because that was, as I mentioned, what, what Spectre has always tried to solve is making it possible for collectives or basically more than one person to make a collaborative investment by pooling funds and also making sure that everything is book kept and you know who has invested what amounts. And then from there, when there are assets to be vested out and given to people, for example, if you invest in a gaming token, for example, like Shrapnel, when the time comes when the token would be vested out, then you would basically not have to assume that the person that helped pool the funds is also going to fairly distribute everything for you. So we are a strong believers of the trustlessness of execution for those things and making sure that the data that is on chain is the truth and it's open. And you make sure that any type of relevant like debt or whatever distribution that you're looking to fix is going to be able to be executed upon whenever the person who's going to do a claim can do so. Now, we realized as we got more and more clients coming in the door that technology can be used for a lot more things than that. And we are now, for example, building like storefronts for people where you just want to make sure that you keep track of who has paid what to have sort of like a order book of what people have ordered. And then from there, you can build off-chain systems to send order confirmations. You can even handle basically emails with digital assets or just shipping information or so on. Just using this as a quick and easy way of making transactions and making sure that money comes where money should go, basically. Where we want to go is even further than that. The real vision that we're looking to do is build something that could compete with SEPA or SWIFT multiple years down the line, where we can actually leverage the benefits of, of crypto to get instant finality of transactions and know the money goes from one point to the next in a transparent way to make sure that that is the money where it should be going, because there is a lot of power in actually having that transparency as well. So it's a very lofty goal. We'll see if we'll ever get there, but aim high, right? I can definitely relate that there are real pain points in Web3 investing specifically that need these kind of solutions. Like there are a lot of like smaller investment groups out there. Felix right. started one that I'm also a part of. And in a lot of these groups, it's sort of like you make these investments and you're just kind of hoping that because you sent some funds to an address X months ago, that someone is tracking that. And at some point it's going to be followed through. It's like, it's kind of wild. Like sometimes it's just like tracked in a spreadsheet somewhere, which is yeah. ironic when we have all the, this blockchain technology available. So yeah. as the sector matures, like absolutely these kind of solutions are needed. 
Yeah. And that was the scary part because that was how we started as well. And I was like, this is too error prone. It's too easy to misclick on one cell in a spreadsheet. And then all of a sudden, all the numbers are seemingly correct, but one person has received a 10th of what they're supposed to receive or something like that as well. Or 10x. And then keeping track of, yeah, exactly. And then if you can basically distribute out a lot of the factors to make it so you don't have to be accountable for everything and the system can handle itself and people can come in and actually claim what they're owed, then that makes life a lot easier as well. Because if one person has a problem, they can reach out and you can solve it rather than making sure that everything is working for everybody as well. Especially when you're dealing with, I think at some point we've had up to like 600 different investors at one point in time. And that makes it very, very hard to keep track of what's supposed to be where. Right. Yeah. I'd love to pivot now, Francis, and dig deeper into shrapnel and shrapnel's economy. I'd love your personal assessment of what shrapnel is trying to achieve, what you've learned from the past with constructing the economy for shrapnel. And to be blunt, like how you hope to differentiate when we see such a near perfect fail rate of token-based gaming models and what you've learned from that and how you think shrapnel can innovate on that. From the way we look at it, we have multiple different prongs in the economy. From an overarching structure, the way to see the, the thought process is you have this thing at the top known as shrap, and then you have multiple different subsystems that are all completely independent from each other. So I'll just focus on two. So you have the creator economy and the actual gameplay section of that loop. And the way you design it is that if the creator economy for some reason, and whatever that is, it collapses, well, it does not in any way affect the actual player portion of that economy. So they're completely separate and only connected from the top by what makes the game the game, and that is the fact that the Shrap token's integrated. So the end goal for each economy is you know, slightly different. The creator economy is one where we want consistent, fresh, high-quality content to be fed to players or to collectors if they're collecting skins for people to just have a high quality experience, like to have the shrapnel experience that they desire to have, whether that's to use a pink unicorn skin or whether that's to use some hardcore death metal skin from their favorite band, let's say. Very two separating and, and different experiences, but something that the creator economy should be able to support both of those. And then it is about correctly attributing the value to the people that made that possible, which is the people making it. The creators, similar to a Roblox model or how UEFN has been implemented in Fortnite, but making it slightly more controlled and constrained from the get-go so that that quality can be made at a AAA level without having to have a deep understanding of what to do. UEFN has a few problems. They've opened up the door so freely at the start that like there is a learning curve to get behind and there is also a lot of struggles with making specific content because of how broad they've made the tools. Whereas the way we necessarily look at opening that up from the economy perspective is highly constrained scenarios. So maybe it starts off editing just our maps, our content, and then over time, branching that out so that if you want, you can go from this heavily curated tool to basically working in the Unreal Editor. And the reason that's connected to the economy is it's the same thought process and idea of the way we open up the economy. You start off with a very constrained environment that can be tested internally with the current player base and slowly open that up and slowly add in potential errors in design or attack vectors for people to try and manipulate. But if you just drop it all at once, which I think is what a lot of people have been doing, that's where the problems occur. The same kind of thought process happens in the gaming side where initially you, know, you limit player trading between each other to certain different avenues 
and then we slowly add new features. Even adding new features in a peer-to-peer -peer economy is interesting. For example, like if we have a base set of, let's say, six weapons, and then suddenly you add a new type of weapon. So it's not an assault rifle, it's not a submachine gun, let's say we add a light machine gun. That changes the entire economy's core structure. And what we could do is we could add 15 weapons at a time and just drop them in. And that's not really a great way to do it because there's no, as you said, good data or good examples of success. So we want to see all these behavioral impacts of adding either new content or changing content. Let's say we don't even add something. Let's say we feel like a certain weapon is too powerful. Too many people are using it. So we reduce its power level. Okay, that also reduces the price. What's the psychology behind that? How does that affect people? So I think for us, the way we go about this is taking an extremely safe approach. Like you can treat these as actual assets to people. They care about them. They have financial value. So one of those two vectors can easily be attacked and you want to keep them as consistent as possible. And the only way to do that is to slowly make the changes until you understand the deep implications of everything that you're doing. The high yeah. level, it's lots of subsystems and then slow expansion over time and not just dropping an entire thing where you know there could be a day zero error that you just don't know exists in your actual design. It's very focused, curated extraction of information for us. As you're talking, I can't help but thinking, you know, in, in the business of launching and scaling games here at Uptick, we were always talking with our partners about just the many, many failure points that can occur just for a traditional video game going to market, like what can break. And obviously, like we're big bulls on what Web3 can bring to the gaming sector and in disclosure, which I should have said up front, I'm a small investor in, in Shrapnel. I've used the platforms that Felix has built. We believe in these folks, or I, I, I do personally. But everything you just described, it's this whole other layer of complexity and fail points in adding these Web3 economies to a business model that already has so many potential fail points. So maybe it's actually easier to look at this a little deeper from the opposite side of like, what is bad token design? I know we talked about general pitfalls, but what are some themes that you've generally seen in bad token design that you have personally learned from or Shrapnel has learned from, Francis? It's, I think part of it is trying to do too much at once, right? Especially in gaming, right? You look at what a token is for. It's meant to make you absorbed in an ecosystem. Same thing works at a poker table. The reason they give you chips is so that you don't think it's real money. When you go from one country to the other, you can think of that as like a gaming currency. Like you have to switch because it is a sub-economy within the world. Just like when you're coming into shrapnel, like the currency that you have is meant to be a fictional piece. Like it is meant to be slightly fictionalized in how you think about it, how you use it and what you can do with it. And I think that's a story that a lot of people forget to tell. When we're doing a lot of this, we'd notice people were designing tokens around like almost purely financial models. And then also replacing typical game usages with just token. And we're going, that's token design. Like they would put some staking in, they would put some basic in-app purchases in and go, that's done. But like really what you're meant to ask yourself is like, what am I trying to get my user to do here? Like what is the behavioral action that I'm trying to push them towards? Because that's what game design is really. You're trying to make people perform actions and then enjoy it. And I think that's how we approached our token design because we noticed a lot of this over financialization of gaming where the only motivation was profit or just going back to a, a default like hey this is a typical video game usage whereas we turned it around and was like hey, maybe if we sat there and tried to think of okay there's a giant list of new potential motivations that a person can have as a player with a token that has value how do we connect that to traditional game design thought processes 
and design something around making them do things with that token. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. We talk a lot about how for a lot of teams, it seems like the idea of like, okay, we need a token comes first and then kind of shoehorning into the game after that. Mixed with we've, for better or for worse, built a fundraising model in Web3 Gaming where VCs, at least in this era, expect there to be a token. So that was increasing pressure on teams to shoehorn a token in, yeah. even if it's not even in the original spec. Felix, I'd love to get your thoughts on the same topic and maybe also because you focus in this area, the emerging compliance issues we've discovered in using tokens in game design mm-hmm. and what teams need to think about. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I love what Francis said. One thing that it reminded me a lot of is the typical things to learn about modeling and everything in uni when you do engineering is that you kind of want to build up a model that makes sense for the actual domain that you're trying to facilitate as well. So for example, the DeFi terms of staking and a liquidity provision and so on, it doesn't necessarily make sense in a game. So if you can build up that lore and the understanding of what inner work is you're trying to achieve inside of the game itself, that's going to make way more sense for the people. And it's also going to make things a whole lot more fun because lore is always important for those who are interested. I mean, we all know the difference a good story makes to a good game. If you have outstanding mechanics, but the story is boring, a lot of people will drop off because they don't find something that hooks them in. It's just as relevant to think about that when you're actually working with something that could have monetary value. And I think the other key thing is, and and I'm, I'm not sure, I know that Francis agrees with me on that one. That is that tokens and monetary incentives should be secondary to the game itself. A good game will be able to stand on its own. A good token, not necessarily. It's going to be way harder because it's just a token. It's supposed to be used to transact for something. So you want to have that value in there, right? And that can be a perfect segue into talking about more token compliance and so on as well. And that's where Francis is kind of one of my guiding hands at times as well. It's very important to have good utilities, time back to what we talked about when it comes to how we test and securities and so on. It's very important to make sure that the token is in this, so it's strictly tied to your type of organization, depending on where things are navigating. There are a lot of rabbit holes we can delve into there. I think that's a separate conversation to talk about. I think that the most important thing is making sure that when you build a game with a token to make it as clear as possible that the token is intended to be used for value outside of actual making money and building up good avenues where people can transact and exchange value that isn't necessarily strictly monetarily driven. The other side is making sure that you don't frame it as, for example, if you are to fundraise, that you're looking to strictly make money off of it, because then again, there's the Howie test. And there are a lot of different other areas as well. I think, Francis, you'd probably want to chime in here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the main thing I think a lot of people forget is... The gaming industry with a capital G, otherwise known as gambling, also exists. And that happens anytime, you know, we get into the space. If you play a game or you do thing, you make money at someone else's expense, right? Like you, you bet on some kind of circumstance to happen and that, that does happen and you make money. Or it doesn't happen and you lose money. So I think it is very easy on the game design front for people, especially in the Web3 space, to accidentally crawl into the capital G gaming space and open a whole bunch of different like doors that they don't want to open that get them into a ton of different types of regulatory problems. So I think that is one of the key problems that people end up walking into and and don't understand, I think, deeply enough, because you don't just have one country potentially coming after you. You have every single country you've sold a copy of the game coming after you. The other piece is understanding 
the separation and structure between the token, the actual company making the token, like all of these things, people always recommend different types of things. I think the core thing there that differentiates them is the DAO is not the company that makes the game. The DAO is the thing that should be directing the company that makes the game to perform certain types of actions. And having a good legal structure there is always good. The final piece coming into kind of what Felix was saying is the token design has to have enough utility to be not just an argument for someone making profit. Like there has to be some good use cases there um, that differentiate themselves. And I think, you know, coming back to the whole idea of, hey, I just stake money and, and things happen. Well, there's tons of things that can happen, but people seem to be focused solely on just giving you tokens back. It's like maybe, you know, as a gamer, I'd be happy to deposit, let's say, $100 onto a platform, never touch that $100, but just get continuous rewards. It's like buying, you know, an infinite season pass, or it's like getting a battle pass over again, or, or access to certain skins, or exclusive access to content. Like there's so many different things you can do with staking, rebranded as other formats. That's where a lot of these folks could get themselves into less legal hurdles if they just made a slightly more complex system that's actually geared towards gaming and not just invest. Yeah. The staking piece is really interesting because it really talks about how you can use cryptocurrency in a way that's actually unique to the space. You're doing something that you're not capable of doing in other games, and that's what makes yep. a Web3 game actually exciting. The interesting piece there, right, is like you've motivated someone to put money into the game. Like someone has decided to put, let's say it's $100, put $100 into the game. If they're interested enough and you've done a good enough job, they're probably going to want to spend that after staking it. Like they're probably going to look at a piece of content and go, yes, let me do that. Yes, let me do that. So initially there was a carrot of, oh, you don't actually have to spend the money. You just have to deposit it and it's all good. And then the stick is like, oh, look at all this dope stuff that we have done in our ecosystem. So like from a game design perspective, you've done the hardest thing to do, which is get people to put money onto the platform to buy the content you're making because there was no push to be like, hey, just deposit this and then we keep it forever. No, it's the push of like deposit this, you can withdraw it whenever you want. And I think that's like, you know, one of the nuances that at least at Shrat always thought about so much when it comes to what you can do in the space. Right. And there's like a much lighter barrier of injury if you know that it's money you just pull back out at any time. Yeah. It kind of also shows another natural progression to what pure staking would be because now you have the time aspect that Francis just mentioned as well where you stake for a while but then after a while let's say it's, it's a timeless one instead of just taking the money out and just disappearing and that whole cycle ends you can then see okay I've had a trial period now I've made some money and now I can actually spend all of that if I want to as well right. that goes into building more of an intricate loop and more perpetuity into the ecosystem loop as well which there are a lot of avenues you can play around with those aspects it's a psychological investment and then it's basically, oh, this is house money, right? This is earned money. Why not just spend it in the ecosystem that's already invested in? It's very clever. Yep. I wanted to rewind because you said something interesting, which I've always had a lot of questions about and I think our audience might as well. You said the DAO isn't the company. The DAO is an instrument that's designed to direct the company. So what you mean by that, you actually need to incorporate the business entities as well and you're using a DAO as like a meta layer to direct it. Or can you just talk a little bit about the way that you think about that legal structure and what's the right way to do it versus what's the wrong way to do mm. it? There's lots of different structures you can adopt, right? Like there obviously needs to be a company that pays employees in different parts of the world that build the game. That often exists and will exist before a DAO actually exists. Then the way they work together depends on how you structure the token because usually the DAO is on the token side and is actually representing that entity. So it's all about the agreement that has been formed between the company that makes said products 
for the token issuing entity to have their token exist in some kind of ecosystem. And then like we can look to web two actually to look at the formations or the different formations for gaming DAOs. I'll name three games. So Eve Online, RuneScape, and Warframe. RuneScape takes this model of, okay, we do streams, we take your opinions in on those streams, we do polls, and if that poll gets more than 75%, we'll start a process off. That process could be implementation of a change based on the poll, or if it requires development, develop something, and then have another poll, and if it gets 75%, again, push that piece of content through. They feel tied to those votes, so they actually enact all of them. There's an EVE Online style model, which has a council elected by the player base, which once a year, they come to CCP Studio in Iceland, unfortunately named Studio, if you're familiar with China, and then in, yeah. they then go there and they can look into every single process that's going on. They get a full under the covers look. They can't tell that to the necessary audience that they're representing, but they can say, okay, you elected us to say, we think they're going down the right path. We don't think they're going around the right path. That is not a final decision like it's treated in the RuneScape world. And then you have Warframe, which just takes, they go, you've been a, a player for a long time. You spent a lot of money. We know that you're cool. All of you guys are on the council. We'll listen to your opinion. But again, it's not final. So each of those takes a different kind of approach. Personally, I like the EVE Online model for having a council of curated members elected by a community. But I do think mixing that with something akin to the RuneScape side of this, where it's like, okay, we have ideas, but like as a community, you should vote on them to some degree, but it shouldn't be a 50-50. Like, if there is a contention in the decision, it is not a good enough decision to be made to implement and spend, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars on. If there is no contention, it's like 75% plus, great, fantastic. The whole cohort agrees, or nearly the whole cohort. And that's why you've seen, you know, these games either maintain a consistent popularity or since Ultra RuneScape was a release in like 2013, all it's done is gain players because of these approaches. So I don't think we have to reinvent a wheel. We just have to apply this wheel to a legal structure that exists in the Web3 space. What you basically described now are different ways of handling a DAO with a foundation as well. Yeah, like you're basically a DAO, like a decentralized autonomous organization. It needs a council. That council could be defined as anything. It could be people holding a token. It could be people elected by people holding a token. And the authority of that DAO also depends on the way you structure it. Like its word could be final and gospel. Some of its word could be final and gospel on certain decisions and not on others. And some of it could mean absolutely nothing. And it's all suggestive to a separate company that may or may not implement those. So that's all the different ways. Personally, I'm a huge fan of a very trivial and simple quality of life decisions being made actually by, for example, if, if we're talking about games, a, a gaming company, because people think they know what they want, but they actually usually don't when it comes to this space. And then a lot of the larger vision and scope decisions being made by the community, which may sound reversed to a lot of people, but like they're telling you what they holistically want to play. But like, I wouldn't let the average user decide what mechanics will be best. Right. So just buff the favorite gun, which isn't good for yeah. the ecosystem. <laughs> exactly. The incentives aren't aligned, but the incentives are aligned if they're telling us, hey, this is our interpretation of the product you've made then that gives game designers a chance to go back and go, oh, okay, so this is how you're thinking about it and that's the path you want it to take as opposed to doing exactly what you're saying and saying, hey, maybe the fire rate's too low on this thing and I can't kill people fast enough. Like That intrinsically changes the experience as opposed to changing your interpretation of the experience. Yeah, and, and just tying back to what you talked about earlier, I think a key aspect to all this as well to make sure that people are aware if they're part of the DAO or helping govern the success of the product is to 
take the baby step that baby steps that Francis described before as well, because if you just drop a huge complex system on people, they will not be aware of all the intricacies that are going on. But if you keep spoon feeding them and incrementally adjust them to so they can adapt to the complexities that are in there, they are more likely to understand also what is good versus bad for the collective and the, the overall product versus the individual. Yeah. Right. Right. I'd love to keep talking about this for another hour, but unfortunately we are getting to the end of our time. It's been a really interesting. I think we had quite a journey. Thank you guys both for coming. Before we wrap, if anyone wants to get a hold of either one of you or wants to learn more about Mude or Shrapnel, where can they do that? So for Shrapnel, it is just, you know, play Shrapnel on Twitter. We actually respond to every DM, which I think some people don't know. So if you message us, we will reply no matter what you say within reason. Uh, <laughs> but then for myself personally, it's, you know, at Francis Branken on Telegram or T-A-M-E-S-Y-R-H on Twitter is the best ways to contact me. For Mude, you can always email us hello at Mude.app. You can go to the website as well, Mude.app. We are also Mude app at Twitter. So if you ever want to reach out on Twitter, that Twitter is still very small, but we'll, we'll definitely respond to your DMs. Don't worry. <laughs> and if you want to reach me on Telegram or Discord or Twitter or whatever, I am Felix Norden basically everywhere. I think I am Felix T.R. Norden because somebody stole my handle on Twitter in 2011 and it's been inactive since. And uh, just email us, contact us, ping us. Awesome. Felix, Francis, thank you guys so much. I think this was an important episode for anyone building in Web3 Gaming. These are a couple of those important topics where we often don't know what we don't know, but can absolutely be the deciding factors between success and failure in a Web3 business if you don't do your proper diligence and have the proper partners. So thanks so much, everyone, for checking out the episode today. As always, it was brought to you by our team here at Uptick. Here at Uptick, we do all things to help games grow, games of all sizes and technologies. If you're building cool stuff, come talk to us. We can help with user acquisition, with the data science and analytics around that and with all of the creative developments needed for both growth within the Web3 ecosystem and with mass market mainstream game adoption. So if any of that is helpful to you, you can reach us on our website. It's uptick.com, U-P-P-T-I-C.com. Talk soon.